from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Friday the 8th of September. I hope you're having a great day and have big plans for some weekend fun. But before that, I've got a fantastic show for you today. First up, we have Jack Venus. He has a really impressive career building nonprofits that help veterans. And along the way, he discovered that he needed a job tool as well. So he built job paths we will learn about it and how that it's a nonprofit hub. It's a fascinating story. You are going to be really impressed. After that, we're welcoming back to the show Taraj Parang. He is a venture capitalist, MA guy, founder of webs.com. And today we're talking about his new book, Exit Path. It is an A plus conversation. You will learn a lot. He is now running a robotics company. And we will have him back to talk about that again soon. On Monday, we have fascinating conversation with someone who has built a snack company that is a delivery service. And at the same time, she had the same problem that Jack did. Needed an HR recruiting solution. She's also built one. And we're going to deal with one of the, or talk to one of the largest swag companies in the world on Monday. So great stuff coming up, but most importantly, I sh- I need theme music for this. Maybe this. Billionaire alert! We have a billionaire in the next week or so as well. Always excited for that. Anyway, great show today. Thanks for being with us. We'll get started in just one or two. I don't know, about ten seconds. to us if you have any questions or comments or if you need help with your business at any stage from concepts to exit jim accepts all connections on linkedin he tweets from at entrepreneur jim and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy the show we are back in again thank you so much for being with us i'm very excited to introduce my first guest they're doing He's doing a lot of things to help you with a lot of cool tools. Jack Fanus is the founder of Job Path. They have created a new tool called Mission Plus. We will learn about it in just a minute. Job Path is an internet community designed to bring people together who are trying to network, is my understanding. It's a SaaS model. We will learn about it. He is, in addition to that, very active in giving back to the community. He created an organization called GI Go Fund, which helps military veterans and is also very active in other veterans' affairs and with Habitat for Humanity in his home state of New Jersey. Welcome, Jack. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. All right. So job path to me seems like a, a network community for job seekers. Is that correct? Uh, that's that's one of the features we have. I mean, job path essentially what we've created um, is what we like to think of as an operating system, essentially for nonprofits who are servicing individuals with disabilities, veterans, or others from the diversity background, uh, people who have challenges finding work, uh, but a little bit different than what like an Indeed would do to help somebody find work, right? Indeed right. or Career Bubble, you're going to go just search for a job. Having run a nonprofit for 20 years that I founded myself. Um, I recognize that most of the time when you're working in the nonprofit space and somebody's unemployed, there's usually several other reasons why they're unemployed. They're just not between jobs sometimes. Maybe they've never written a resume before or they need help writing a resume or they need some additional job training or they might need, need a counselor to connect them with housing or mental health uh, resources to get them over the hump. That's what our system does, and it's customized and tailored for each individual community because, again, most nonprofits are not national groups working on a national program, but they may be a group working in a small county in New Jersey or a small county in Kansas. And we want to make sure these resources are tailored to the individual and help the individual find a job and find all these other resources. I think what we're most proud of is up until now, when you visit a nonprofit's website, most of the time you'll find a donate button and information about that, what that nonprofit does. What we like to say is you come to our websites, you'll find a donate button and the things that this nonprofit does. So it, the website actually does what the nonprofit does, not just tells you about it. So it's an interesting way to describe it as an operating system. I mean, exactly. That has, you know, certain implications. So when you say that, what all does that include? Does that include some marketing pieces and finance pieces? And I don't really understand. Sure. So I'll go through it. So when we first designed it, right, my nonprofit that I founded, GI Go Fund, our primary function was helping veterans who were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan to find jobs. And what did that look like for me as my as my nonprofit? I was constantly helping people walk into my office who were writing resumes. I was constantly running resume workshops, job training workshops. Those things were basically once or twice a year as you schedule them, job fairs, things like that. So we found that we were actually delivering our services, the actual services that we wanted to at these events and fairs, and they were only happening periodically throughout the year. And for me, I said to myself, well, we're here in the 21st century. We should be able to deliver our nonprofit services and the things that our community is looking for on our website 24 hours a day. And I went out on a search to find somebody that provided this type of software, a resume builder, job training, mentorship, access to services, um, access to other nonprofits in the community. And none of it existed. And that's when we started building job path which does all of these things that we just discussed also combining powerful fundraising software that now allows you to market to your donors and market to your constituents uh, and really do all the things that a nonprofit does um, rather than just a typical website for a nonprofit today which is just if you were to come into our offices these are the five programs that we have and there's a donate button in the top right right and so is there a way for you to post things as well to talk to the whole community or yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of communication back and forth. You have a newsroom built into the system, but you have a, you have direct communication into your Facebook, Twitter, um, or X as they call it now, uh, and other social media to really amplify your message right directly from the system that we're creating from you, but also a whole lot of email marketing built into the tool, right? So like I can set up, for instance, I'll just give you an example. I can set up that I want every veteran who's come to my organization in the last six months 
to build a resume, to get a follow-up email that asks whether or not they found a job, if they're still in the job search and what they might need next. And then that email is triggered automatically. The communication goes out as opposed to also being able to do that with my funders. So really just point and click, uh, no code services for people who run nonprofits, whether you're starting one or you're growing one or you're at working at one. This is that 21st century solution for technology that just hasn't existed before. Very cool. So you'll go on and post that you were on the show and tell other entrepreneur veterans that I would like them to be on the show too, because we'd love to feature more veteran stories, right? A hundred percent. And, and the message would make it out to our entire network of nonprofits, which is well over a hundred now who are using our services. We now have an amplification to all of them as well. So nonprofit leaders, nonprofit directors, people who work there, their, their groups, their constituencies, um, really the network itself has grown because if you think about nonprofits, most of the time we, we work in silos, right? I, I show up at work at my organization. I'm working on the clients that are walking in my door. You know, maybe I attend a leadership breakfast or something once a quarter, but primarily I'm working in my, in my world. Uh, this network that we've created of different organizations that are connected by software, now we're able to communicate with one another about services, about ways to help one another and about cool options, opportunities like this. My wife was in the nonprofit space for decades. Her last one was American Cancer Society and some great organizations there. But one of the things that constantly annoyed us was that whoever the latest real housewife of somewhere was, they had to create their own foundation, which it seemed to me consisted of a gala or a gala or whatever, however you want to pronounce it, which in essence is competing with older, more established charities that don't necessarily spend as much of their money on the gala. You know what I mean? Jack, are you there with me on this? Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's really what we're focused on, right? Is, is, that's where I was to sort me, of going. Your your organization, your network provides sort of a clearinghouse for competency and quality of the organizations, doesn't it? I would I would say exactly that. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever put it that way, but I think that's a very very smart way to put it. And I'll even take it a step further, right? Like. I don't believe that there's any lack of good intentions in the world. I I don't want to belittle their intentions. Yeah. I think everything is well-intended, but I don't think, I think well-intentions in the 21st century are not enough. Good intentions in the 21st century are not enough. You know why? Because people in need, when they go to the computer, when they Google something, they expect an answer immediately. We have, we have become accustomed to that, that we need an answer or solution or help immediately. Uh, established organizations or organizations that take that extra mile to really put out services. Those are the ones that I want to focus on. The, the ones that just have foundations and gallows and they raise money. It's an important job. It does what it does as long as they distribute the money correctly. But like I said, it's not just about good intentions anymore. We want to move past good intentions and have good results, good outcomes. Um, but I found, I feel like over the 20 years of my career, Good intentions have been enough. You know, most people have gotten by on having good intentions and wanting to help and starting a charity or starting a nonprofit. It's irrelevant in what they do, but the fact that they want to help is what has gotten people by. And I I feel like right now, Mission Plus, Job Path, our mission is to change that. We want to make sure that those good intentions turn into good outcomes. All right. We haven't really talked about Mission Plus yet, have we? Help us understand that. What is that new piece that you're announcing? 
Yeah, Mission Plus is just the opportunity now for for organizations to take what we've built over the years and have been building for like the city of New York and nonprofits like the United Way uh, and major organizations around the country. We've built it now in a custom no code builder that an organization that's smaller, maybe doesn't have a developer or maybe needs something quickly or even a startup, they can do it on their own. So very similar to going to WordPress, which doesn't have any resources for nonprofits or going to Wix, which doesn't have any resources for nonprofits and building your website. You would come to Mission Plus now, build your website and find all those resources that we're talking about. You'd be able to embed a resume builder for your constituents. You'd be able to embed job training, over 300 job training classes, 200 of which are in Spanish, right in there for free for your users. You can create dashboards for them to find mental health resources right there. Apply for millions of jobs using our built-in job board right there. All of that is accessible once you deploy a, a, a Mission Plus site, which you wouldn't get if you were using WordPress or if you're using any of these other sites because they're not built for nonprofits. Nonprofits, like we have been doing for generations, have been trying to make software work for us, right? Like, we'll find a way to make a Google Doc work for our, what we're doing, or we'll try to make Excel work for what we're doing, or this CRM isn't really made for nonprofits, but we'll find a way to make it work. That's the end of that. For us, Mission Plus has been building software specifically for nonprofits. Again, I've been running a nonprofit for 20 years. I still run my nonprofit. I know the pain points. I know what everybody's been looking for. And that's what made us create this. And the last piece of Mission Plus is that we've also built powerful fundraising software, which we've been using now for eight years, uh, help power some of the, the largest fundraisers in the country. And we're getting ready to change the game because we're going to provide all of our, all of our partners 0% transaction fees on their on their donations. So where you're paying 3.5% transaction fees and 30 cents for every transaction, I look at that and I say, you know what? This country is so divided in so many different places, we're at each other's throats 99% of the time. And the few moments that we're kind to one another and the few moments in which we're good to one another, somebody's in the middle taking a big chunk of that uh, and keeping billions of dollars out of the hands of people who need it most. And, and Mission Plus is going to change that. That is fantastic. The, uh, how do you process a credit card for free, though? I mean, it costs money to actually do that. So. We're, we're not processing it for free. We're covering the cost. So Mission Plus is pledging to get in the middle and cover that cost so that it's free for the nonprofit. All wow. of our nonprofit partners, we're covering that cost. We want that money back in the communities. We want that money back in the hands of the individuals that need it. When you take out $10 and you donate it to an organization that tell, helps kids with cleft lips, you expect that $10 to go to that child with cleft lip. Um, you understand that there's administrative costs, maybe to handle staff and things like that, but you expect it to go to that charity. You don't expect four, about 5% of it to end up in the hands of a bank, a bank that nobody's ever heard of, that nobody's ever thinking about. Uh, and all they did was process from one Excel sheet to the other, uh, move dollars around. So we're, we're going to cover that cost. It's going to be part of our service. Um, and we're going to provide this as 0% transaction fees for our customers. So you've mentioned fundraising. Does job paths depend on fundraising or do you make money from your partners with the SaaS model? Uh, yeah, we make money from our partners. Yeah, no fundraising. We make money from our partners. People pay us to license the subscription, to license the, the, the program. Um, we also make money from our partner employers, right? So I've talked a lot about company, about nonprofits. But the other side of this network, which we've created is, you know, ultimately we're trying to get people jobs. That's our, one of our main goals. So we have tens of thousands of employers who are part of what we do. Uh, they've posted close to 6 million jobs and that's where a lot of our revenue comes in. So we're, we're really able to focus on bringing in the private sector to help the public sector, to help nonprofits, to help their communities by, by hiring them and then using that money to also cover the, the amount of 
transaction fees they have and really empowering the community because Americans donate $484 billion annually. That was a number that blew my mind recently. And of that $484 billion, when you look at the transaction fees, it's about $11 billion we're losing from money that's supposed to be donated just to transaction fees. And we think that with this model that we've created here, we can cover it all. And on top of that, make sure that people are finding jobs. Well, that would be amazing if you can provide that service. That's a fantastic combination and congratulations on the, the 6 million jobs. Is it easier now to get jobs for your veterans because the unemployment rate is so low? Uh, are we doing better serving our veterans than 10, 20 years ago? Certainly better than after Vietnam. Are we doing better, Jack? I, I, we are certainly doing better than after Vietnam. Um, I don't know that we're doing better than we were 10 or 20 years ago. Um, I think some of it might've gone a little bit backwards because 10 years ago, that was kind of the topic of the day, hire veterans. Everywhere you turn, there was a commercial about one company wanting to hire veterans or another, uh, that, that kind of has gone away, right? We're not at war anymore. People aren't thinking about it. There are other issues people are focused on. And I'm glad you gave me an opportunity to talk about it because, you know, that was one of the mistakes we made in the last generation and the generation before that, right? It's front of mind for a few years when everybody gets home, then we forget. And then that forgetfulness or forgetting leads to some sorts of resentment, some kind of um, unhappiness, and oftentimes just a lack of a feeling of disrespect that I, I feel is warranted. And I just think many people should really think about it and say, it's trying to get back to that. And it's not just veterans. You know, when you talk about the entire um, nonprofit space that they serve, you know, individual disabilities, you know, the ADA celebrated ADA 30, a couple, a couple years ago, it was a big deal for a moment, but then it went away. Nobody's talking about it anymore and nobody's focused on it. There are two reasons for that. One is people usually get caught up in the moment. And then two, these companies that we're working with, they really expect you to be able to send them a candidate in the 21st century way, you know, upload their resume, transfer all the data to their systems. They're not expecting to go to a job fair, but in the world where we're helping individuals like this find jobs, typically we're relying on job fairs. So we're asking a company to come out, set up a booth, interview somebody on the site and then hire them, which is not how they operate. So we're trying to update and modernize the process so that it works with the way companies hire so that we can improve those numbers. Jack, what about the overall morale of the veteran community now? I hear that suicides have never been higher. Um, there's the whole defund the police, and I think the military is sort of rubbed off there a little bit. I hear that recruiting is way down and that none of the branches are going to make their recruiting numbers for the year. Uh, talk to me about being a veteran in a society where... It's out of style right now. It's so sad. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I'll be honest with you. It's difficult for me to speak. I'm not a veteran myself. I started a veterans nonprofit after my friend was killed. Seth and I had grown up since elementary school together, and we were at seniors at college on 9-11, and he gave up his shot to go to law school and went um, to the military instead and died, unfortunately, a few years later. So I, I, But I do deal with veterans on a daily basis, not being one, but I do deal with them regularly. And you do hear a palpable frustration, level of frustration. And I think many, much of it is because if you think back to 2012 and 13 and 14, you know, the wars were still going on. It was in the news every night. We were talking about Afghanistan. We were talking about Iraq. And then you see 
you know, it's pretty much over. Nobody talks about either one of those conflicts anymore. Rarely does it ever come up. And the only time anything was in the news was when we had the Afghanistan withdrawal and it went incredibly wrong. So I, I do believe that a lot of veterans um, are frustrated from our conversations that I talk to them. They're obviously proud of their service and proud of the country they served and why they did it. They're just frustrated many times that people don't maybe recognize it back here at home and, and might've forgotten. And one of the missions of mission plus is to make sure that that story is never forgotten for veterans, for individuals, with disabilities. We want to tell their stories uh, for individuals who were formerly incarcerated, who are taking a second chance. Now we want to tell their stories. We want to make sure these stories are front of mind um, because, you know, for the most part, our country doesn't deal with these populations. They're they're on the periphery and, you know, sometimes a company will hire a veteran or they'll hire a person with disability and they'll often put out a press release about doing so, which makes you feel like they're one-offs. And we want to get to the point where it's just, you know, constant hiring, constantly bringing these individuals in and they're not one-offs and they're not press releases. It's a great, great mission, Jack. And I'm really impressed with what you're doing. It's a fantastic mission and organization and the resources that you're providing are absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'm just really impressed. I had not heard of this and you're doing a lot of cool things. You well, are honoring it, Seth for sure. 100%. How do we and, find and, out? You know, more? Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say his mother has served on our board of the nonprofit for 20 years since we founded it, which I'm really proud of. And I knew her growing up in the third grade and the fourth grade and spent time at their house. So having her be a part of it's important, but it really gave me an opportunity. And I think this is the most important thing. It gave me an opportunity to do the job. And I think for most of us in the nonprofit space, we've had people create software before or create technologies before, and they claim that it's going to do X, Y, and Z for the organization. And 99% of the time, it's a letdown. And the reasons I've discovered is because they've never done the job. They never worked in a nonprofit. They never worked with an individual who's trying to find a job or was homeless or was dealing with a mental health crisis. They don't understand the challenges or what tools we need. They're just thinking of ways to make money. And in reality, most nonprofit software, all it ends up being is donor software that takes a percentage of the donation. So, you know, when we got into this, we felt like we had an unfair competitive advantage because we've done the job. We know what was needed. We have tech um, backgrounds ourselves and we're able to do uh, the things that the space needed where maybe some of the others that are in our in our space <clears throat> aren't necessarily thinking about it or um, know what to do. So we're really proud of the work that we were able to do. And I, I, I thank God for the life experiences that I had, because I don't think I would have been able to do what we're doing now had I not had the experience of running the organization. Most, uh, most true. Jack, it's a great story. Thank you for being with us and sharing, uh, Godspeed to you. You're, you're doing great work. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. We'll be back in just a second. We're going to talk about exit paths with returning guest Taraj Parang. We'll be right back. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. That's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio.
We are back in again. Thank you for being with us today. You know, the point of being an entrepreneur, I think, is to sell the business at the end and make a pile of money and buy a boat, right? Isn't that why we're all doing this? Our next guest is going to help us do that. He has had an amazing career in Silicon Valley as an M&A specialist, both as a, an attorney and also as a deal guy. He is had an amazing career. I'm excited to welcome Taraj Parang to the show. He is author of a new five-star book called Exit Path, How to Win the Startup End Game. He has worked with companies that have ended up selling to LinkedIn, Instacart, Vistaprint, Postmates, and a bunch of others. And he's also done corporate development for webs and go daddy pretty damn impressive career taraj welcome to the show how are you doing thank you jim i'm doing great delighted to be on the show when do i start thinking about the exit about year three or four i don't i don't need to worry about it until i've already got a bunch of sales and am i and successful right or do i need to think about it even before i start the business that, that's the key point. I, my recommendation is you can never start soon enough. And uh, in fact, uh, with my first startup, I, it was always an afterthought. And then I caught my, uh, we, we basically caught ourselves in the global financial crisis, uh, which we could not have predicted. And uh, we were flat with it and we couldn't, uh, we couldn't make an exit happen. And unfortunately, after a wild run and being one of the hottest Silicon Valley startups, my first startup, we had to basically sell for the pennies on the dollar because there was no one around to buy us and we were running out of cash fast. So you never know what's around the corner. And therefore, my recommendation is to prepare as early as you can. In, fa in fact, it has a, a lot of other benefits too. When you do that, you can actually build a stronger business when you have a end in mind that's kind of beginning with the end in mind so to speak and you can kind of think about what would an acquirer find valuable in your business so you can properly um, have that kind of objective check against what you're doing day to day all right i think that's absolutely fantastic advice and before we came on the air i was telling taraj that i started my first business and we discovered three or four years in that there was no one really to buy it. Taraj, we were in the summer camp space, but we were the world's largest summer camp with 89 locations, including at some of your alma maters. We had a location at Stanford, one of our signature locations. And you know who the hell buys a summer camp company worth tens of millions of dollars? You know, it's a bizarre conundrum. You'll never guess who we ended out selling it to Taraj in a million years. Well, you, you might guess, who do you think we ended up selling it to? Huh, that's a really interesting uh, industry that I know little about, but I would say any, any, anyone that's kind of interested in educational uh, uh, endeavors would be a good strategic partner for you, like tutoring and other Like it, it would be an interesting sort of uh, synergy with anyone in the education space. But tell me, who did you sell it to? cheerleaders we sold huh. it to the cheerleading camp people amazing they're the amazing. They, the cheerleading industry has figured out 
something that we could never figure out is that you force the kids to buy the uniforms from you. So they're spending hundreds of dollars to come to the camp, but then they drop hundreds of dollars on a uniform that costs you $12. And they were actually a merchandising company in disguise. We figured out and I couldn't figure out how to merchandise the computers. Dell was already selling it to you, you know? So anyway, that's what happened there. That, that is very interesting. Now, if I may ask you a question, uh, how did that, uh, how did that courtship come about? How did you figure this out and how long did it take from, uh, beginning to finish in, in that M and a path? Well, wow. What a story this is, uh, Taraj. We actually met a man who, uh, this was. 30 years, literally 30 years ago now. And computers were, you know, four or $5,000 for the high-end machines that I needed. And I needed two or 300 per location. And, uh, so we're talking millions of dollars to get the computers to turn the camp on day one. And so our overarching objective was not to grow camp, but was to decrease computer cost. And so we ran into a guy at Comdex who was on the California University System Board of Directors, so very connected. He had started a company that had gone public, um, Power Kai's Power Goo Tools. Do you remember uh, Meta Meta Works, Meta something or other? They made Kai oh, yeah. Power Tools, that company, mm -hmm. the, the graphic mm -hmm. company. and. Right. The CEO flew into Atlanta, brought a Ferrari with him to Atlanta, had a Ferrari flown in. We had <laughs> dinner with him at my parents' expensive club, which is a tie-only jacket and tie required. He walked in in a black T-shirt after revving <laughs> his engine as loud as he could in the front. And... Totally ignored the guy, the maitre d with the jacket request. And at the end of the meal, my partner, my parents and my partner's parents, all six of us agreed that he was something dirty. So it's just something not right. But we all also voted to, to go into business with him. It was sort of like eyes wide shut open type thing. And the next day, the three of us crammed into the, his Ferrari drove over to Alabama where uh, a computer company that was part of the shuttle program existed. And we walked out of there five hours later with 4,000 computers. Three. <laughs> and so then he said, now you guys need to build the business and go and expand and build an online portal and all of the things that you would have done. And then he flaked and we almost never saw him again. And we went and spent the money and I got $10 million in debt to Raj and then realized the guy wasn't going to deliver the money that he promised. Ouch. And so then, so the, the reason I tell you all of this is not only did was the selling to cheerleaders interesting? I had to go into the venture market and raise money by starting off by saying, I'm $10 million in debt and I'm going to go out of business in a month, but you still are going to want to invest in me. 
What do you think? Well, that, that's a very, uh, uh, you know, in an economy like today, you would never be able to raise money for that. But also uh, kudos to you for having been able to raise money and for making it work in any economy. That's a very tough position to be in. Uh, but uh, but what, what you, one thing you mentioned about this sort of doing a deal uh, sort of uh, on a kind of a, on an afternoon sort of uh, not having time to do proper diligence is actually a big, big problem with not taking your time and creating an exit strategy from the beginning because you never know when an acquirer may, quote unquote, fly in be interested in your business. So what most entrepreneurs find themselves uh, in this situation is that they have no time. They have to quickly react to some kind of an opportunity or they're running out of money and they have to quickly sell like we did with my first startup. And so uh, this is, this, this is what, what preparation becomes key and doing it when, at a time when things are going well, because you never know what will happen. Exactly. We did it when times were bad. So I'll just really quickly finish the story. We went after corporate money and one of our, uh, one of my friends from college, and this is about how important a network is. I called every single person I knew. And one of them said, I know a guy who runs a, a firm and they have invested in cheerleading. And so they looked at us and in the end, they called and said, we're not interested. And then five minutes later, the CEO that they had hired to run the company for them called and said, I want to invest. I want to do it. And we ended up getting the money that way, which was just a really weird thing and just bizarre story. But I guess that's the way all money is raised bizarrely. <laughs> And so, and, and so the, and they are the ones who ended up acquiring you, I guess. Uh, yes, the, end the, of the CEO actually brought his money in and borrowed, got money from the cheerleaders, and and guess what he does now? He's a priest. Wow, life is just too what weird. A, <laughs> what a career trajectory! Yes, uh, I thought mine was. Uh, uh, strange, but yes, that's very unconventional. Yes. <laughs> All right. So anyway, back to the important thing, your book. All right. So five-star rated on Amazon with 40 five-star reviews. So a very impressive response. Congratulations on that. Tell us Thank some you. of the points. What are some of the learning points in the book? Thank you. So, you know, basically after that terrible experience with my first startup, um, I sort of set out to uh, not do the same mistakes I made then. And I would say the key mistake we made, uh, as I uh, intimated, it's that we didn't uh, court potential acquirers, didn't even do any strategic partnerships because we thought that we had it all figured out. We're going for the IPO, we'll be a billion dollar plus company. Who has time for this kind of uh, plan B or uh, alternative paths. We're, we're going there. We're, we're, we've, we had figured it out in our minds. But economy, of course, had a different story in mind. And so uh, with my next startup, I first thing we did, we did a corporate offsite. Uh, we went off uh, to a nice hotel and spent the weekend there. And we strategize about what would we want to be when we grow up, what would success look like for us, and sort of created the framework of a strategy 
that then we put in motion for the next two years. And that eventually led to a very successful acquisition. And part of that strategy was to go and court potential acquirers, understand what their needs are, and uh, do our own acquisitions and product development in a way that we uh, we fill in the gaps and uh, make ourselves as attractive as possible. And and when we sold that company, webs.com, to Vistaprint, it was a very successful acquisition. We sold more than 10x revenues. We had less than 10 million revenues when we sold at close to $120 million. So it was a very successful outcome, dramatically different from what, we, what, what I had experienced four years earlier. And then um, I sort of then started kind of preaching uh, this message of prepare early. This is what you do. This is how you talk to acquirers um, and, and uh, started investing uh, in startups myself and mentoring other entrepreneurs. And I saw, again, success come out of those lessons. And um, uh, I figured that uh, perhaps having been on these multiple sides of the table, I can bring a very unique perspective here that no one else um, uh, has. Uh, and so I started writing this book five years ago. And, uh, you know, the, actually the pandemic uh, was what I needed in order to finish it because, uh, you know, I, I've had job, full-time jobs, etc. So I was doing this on night and weekends, but uh, because of the pandemic, I had some extra time. So finally I finished it and, and got it published. Um, and since then, as you, you mentioned, it has had really good reviews from entrepreneurs who read it. They've, they've told me that it's a game changer for them. This is an area they would have never really given much thought and attention to. In fact, four out of five founders spend less than a day on their exit strategy. And 40%, I did this survey, 40% spend no time at all. And this is the most single most outcome defining event in their startup's life cycle, and they're spending no time on it. So, um, so my hope is that more and more entrepreneurs read the book, give this their um, mind share, uh, because uh, without paying attention to something, you can't improve it. And uh, we, as entrepreneurs, we, we tweak, experiment, improve a lot of things, but we never pay attention to that one thing that actually makes all the difference at the end of the day. All right. In the book, you talk about the long-term planning that you need to do, playing short game, and then you also talk about the long game. Let's talk about both of those for just a minute or two. What are the short term sure. things I need to think about? Right. So, yeah. So, um, basically, if you were to sort of think about uh, the MA life cycle, um, oh, I kind of divide it up between there's a strategy creation that's just getting your mindset right and then executing on that strategy. So, giving it mind share over time. And that's Execution over time has a long game component, which, uh, you know, uh, I would say if you have more than a year to the time that you want to sell your startup, you are in that long game um, phase. So you have time, you can start developing relationships with strategic partners, you can kind of put together um, things that will help you have leverage when it comes to the short game. And the short game is when you are less than a year away from when you want some transaction to happen. And, and there you kind of focus, about, uh, focus on how do you turn these strategic partnerships, turn your network, in, activate it, 
and make it uh, make a deal come together. So basically, turn up the heat on urgency on the deal coming together. Uh, identify who's real, who's not. How do you basically walk that fine line between being too eager and also being unapproachable and also evaluating acquirers, understanding what the deal terms mean and who do you need to have at the table to make the best possible deal happen for you. Um, so that's the short game component. And I, in the book, I go, of course, into a lot of detail about what's essential in each of these phases. What are the traps for the unwary? What are the best practices I have observed in the 20 plus years I've been doing this stuff in Silicon Valley? And, um, you know, there are ways you can actually take charge of your destiny as an entrepreneur and make sure that, uh, you know, the outcome is as close to uh, the way you want it to be as if uh, uh, as otherwise. Um, so I'll pause here. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's a great, a, a ton of information in there. And a great synopsis you mentioned evaluating acquirers that's really easy it's whoever's got the biggest certified check right i mean who do i care who's buying me you know all that matters is that their check clears and that it's got many many zeros and i don't care who they are right right you know uh, or not that's, um and that's unfortunately what a lot of founders, unfortunately, um, uh, may think. But uh, the reality is that no two acquire is the same and no two check are the same. So um, there comes a lot of uh, other terms that are associated uh, with uh, in an acquisition like that. So, you know, what happens to your employees? What happens to you as the founder? Do you have to stick around or do you have to... Uh, can you just take the cash off the table and go? Are there any earnouts? Basically, are there is is there part of the money that the acquirer is withholding and waiting for you to uh, perhaps meet certain forecasts or hit certain milestones before they can release that from escrow? Um, there is a lot of nuances in these deals, and also you could be going down an acquisition path with one acquirer for say six to 12 months. And at the end of the day, they may pull out. Um, when they sign a term sheet, it's never binding. It's always um, uh, uh, you know, an indication of interest, so to speak, a good faith indication of interest. But then they will start doing diligence. They will start looking uh, under the hood. Even when they sign a deal, they may have clauses that says they can unwind the deal and they can walk away. They cannot close if X1, Y, and Z doesn't happen. They, they could have closing conditions, just like you buy homes and you have closing conditions. Acquirers have closing conditions on your company as well. And so there is a lot of risk. So you have to understand how serious is this acquire? How strategic am I to them? Will they be able to get all the requisite approvals that they need? in order to push the deal through uh, the finish line. You know, the, you may have a great champion who's, let's say, a product manager, but then that person will need to convince their CFO, their CEO. They need to convince the board. Depending on the size of the deal, they, they would need to bring it for a shareholder vote. Each of these steps, um, uh, you know, there's a drop-off potential. And so you need to understand all of those. You need to understand uh, the 
what makes a deal come together before you go far down that path because deals can be extremely distracting. It can be demoralizing if you go down a path and the deal doesn't happen for everybody involved. It could actually kill the company uh, when an acquirer pulls out. So uh, it's uh, there's a lot to be concerned about uh, and be careful about. All right. So we talked about short-term planning. Let's do long-term now. So long-term, uh, you can breathe a lot, a little bit easier, but doesn't mean that uh, you can forget about it, right? So you have to be able to uh, carve out time and have a way to track, monitor your progress. Uh, you know, maybe you start with a list of potential strategic partners, folks who would be on your uh, wish list of acquirers then start understanding how do you approach them? What's, uh, what would be some key attributes of your startup that they would find interesting? Um, go and test those hypotheses with the right people, find the right people, get warm introductions to them, network with them. So all these take a long time and keep iterating, keep building relationships and keep multiple um, folks uh, in the loop on each acquirer side um, as to what's happening with your startup. So to build trust, build their confidence. Um, and sometimes uh, one of the best ways to get close to an acquirer is either to have them as a strategic investor, as sounds like you did uh, with your uh, 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 camp startup or summer camp startup, or you could have um, uh other integrations with them, uh, partnerships, type deep integrations. You, you can see like a lot of times when a company acquires another, usually uh, there is a pre-existing relationship. In fact, at GoDaddy, we did um, uh, tens of acquisitions in my seven-year tenure there. And on average, we knew the entrepreneurs for more than six months before even a, a term sheet was even discussed. So um, you can never be too early in building those relationships and they take time. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. I used to work for Coca-Cola in Japan in the financial office and the CFO there was a Japanese man. And so he was very, you know, operated in a Japanese manner. And I asked him one day, I, I noticed that he spent more time dealing with banks that he didn't do business with than he did with the banks that he had relationships with. And I asked him, mm -hmm. I was like, why you, it seems to me like you're, you're, you talk more to the people you don't need to. And he's like, well, you, you never know. And you know, you just, it was a very Japanese thing to nurture the multiple levels of relationships because you just never know. And probably 20 years after he had one relationship, he told me eventually they started. So imagine that he was courted from the other side. The bank worked 20 years to get his business. Wow. That's, that's an incredible story. And, uh, you know, as entrepreneurs, you know, the way we build value really is to create options, uh, for our startup, you know, and the more options we have, which starts with these conversations, with these relationships, the higher the possibility that we can actually leverage them and uh, rely on them when it comes time to, let's say, uh, 
making a strategic decision. You know, I, we all know that, you know, when if you're selling something, if you have multiple bidders, of course, you can get a better price for it. Um, and, and it's the same with when you're selling your startup. In fact, even having the option to survive, I would say is the best <laughs> leverage point you can have if you are not desperate to sell your startup. Uh, you know, it's, it's, that's one option, right? So um, sometimes people think that, oh, if you're thinking about your exit strategy, you're kind of throwing, throwing the towel and uh, uh, kind of foregoing the path to profitability. And I say absolutely not. That's your biggest uh, advantage. If you can go into these conversations and say, we don't need to sell, but you guys have, you can always make us an offer we can't refuse, uh, then that's what, how you get the price up. Great advice. What is the market like right now? Is it uh, slowing down? Uh, are deals getting done? Is it frothy? Are the valuations silly or are they fair? I think that a year ago, it seemed like they were kind of frothy, in my opinion, a little bit silly, some of the things I was seeing. But I haven't really seen anything recently that made my eyebrows go up. Uh, That's right. That's right. Uh, what That's is your absolutely take on the correct. market? Yeah, no, you're you're spot on. Uh, so, uh, last two years were extremely active years, um, both in terms of deal count as well as there were record years in terms of deal valuations. That tr that significantly changed uh, in 2023. So, um, so far this year, it's been a relatively slower year compared, especially to the last two. But things are picking up. So the slowness was partially because of the interest rates, because of just overall macro climate makes folks more conservative, both on the venture capital side. Investors have been fairly conservative, except for AI investments, <laughs> which is an exception. Uh, but, um, you know, on the acquire side, they have been very, very careful. Um, in fact, I've been uh, mentoring a number of entrepreneurs, helping them through this uh, M&A processes that they're running. And pretty much if they are not profitable or they don't have a very clear path to near-term uh, cash flow positivity, um, acquirers don't want to even touch it. Um, I think that's become that's going to change a little bit. Um, uh, and then compounded with the fact that there is a lot of startups right now that will struggle raising their next round in the next six to 12 months and they'll be all looking for soft landings there's going to be a lot of activity um and those who get ahead of that <laughs> herd of startups coming to market and trying to sell uh, will be well positioned so uh, i i don't think there's any time if you, if anyone is thinking about uh potential M&A next year, they should get started today. And any fallout from SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, going kaput? I heard that there were a lot of startups there who were going to be threatened because of the collapse through uh, various funding mechanisms. You think that's true? Are we going to have any long-term startup pain because of the bank failing? Well, the bank failing, you know, luckily, I mean, and we were one of the startups, actually, that's my startup, Serve Robotics, my current startup, was one uh, one of the SVB clients, and we couldn't move our cash out because we had a loan with SVB, and uh, we, we had to keep our cash there, which, was, which made for a very harrowing uh, <laughs> few days uh, when that... Uh, 
and uh, was unfolding. Luckily, government stepped in. Luckily, um, uh, you know, we got we got our cash out. Uh, in, uh, we got access to our cash. Better way to put it. Um, I think psychologically, of course, it made a lot of CFOs and a lot of uh, investors be. Uh, pay closer attention to where uh, startups keep their money. Um, I would say it's the effect has been more psychologic and conser- uh, conservatism in that sense, uh, rather than uh, very um, tactical things that people do. So I haven't seen a dramatic shift in how startups, for instance, raise money because of it. But everybody is definitely very careful about making sure that the bank that they're using is one that has uh, good fundamentals and they're not they're not going to have a risk of going out of business because the bank they're using is going out of business. Suraj, tons of great information. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. We could ask you so much more. I'd love to talk about robotics and AI, and we'll have to have you back again soon to cover some other topics. How do we find out more about you? Follow you online, URL. How do we get the book? All of that, please, sir. Oh, well, thank you very much for the conversation. I actually really enjoyed hearing about your startup and your journey there. That, that was, uh, that's a very, very interesting story. And, uh, you know, people can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active on the socials. Um, uh, and then um, the book's website is exitpath.net. Even though I worked at GoDaddy, I couldn't get the .com. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, you know, uh, I'm always more than happy to talk to entrepreneurs and, and share my learnings. Fantastic. Taraj, thank you so much for being here. Exit Path, how to win the startup in game. Five-star rated on the Amazon place. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you. We're out of time, but you know what? We come back tomorrow, so don't worry. Have a great day. Go make a million dollars. Bye now. <laughs>